0: Hey, we are starting our second week in a sermon series about money. And as we do that, I wanna I wanna recap the the purpose of this series because I understand there are some common misconceptions about why a church would preach about money, right? The the idea is, well, the preacher just wants more money. Nothing could be further than the truth, further from the truth. I don't want any more money. All right, so let me tell you about our goal for this sermon series, because it's not more money for me. I don't, want a, I don't want more money. I want a new Corvette. And, and so what our goal is, is to buy all the staff members a new Corvette, and then we want to tile the lobby in Italian marble, and then maybe get those Tiffany chandeliers, right? You know, I'm kidding. As we get started, I want to I spend a few moments reviewing our purpose for this sermon series. Very simply put, it's this. We want to strengthen our relationships with God by studying what the Bible has to say about money. We want to strengthen our relationships with God by studying what the Bible has to say about money. And last week we started with a parable. The parable of the talents, the parable of the master who goes away and he leaves his servants with incredible sums of money. To one he leaves half a million dollars, to another he leaves a million dollars, and to the third he leaves two and a half million dollars. And then the master goes away in a long journey, and two of the servants begin to put the master's money to work. The one with $2.5 million doubles his master's investment. And the one with a $1 million doubles his master's investment. And the third one, the one with $500,000, protects his master's investment. He doesn't double it, but he doesn't lose it. Now let me ask you a question. Which one of those three servants is the master pleased with? Which, which of those three servants is the master pleased with? The first two, right, he comes back and he says to them, well done, good and faithful servants, you've been faithful with a small amount, now let me put you in charge of a greater amount. And then they go and have a feast. But the third servant, he's not so pleased with. He's not so pleased with this third guy, the one who buries the money, and this is surprising. Right, You've heard this parable before. You know that the third servant needs to have the smackdown laid on him for being so cautious, for being so careful. But this is surprising to Jesus' first century readers because here's the deal. The safest thing to do with someone else's money Was to bury it. Jewish religious law said that if you buried someone's money and it got stolen, that's out of your control. But if you were reckless with someone's money, then you're held responsible. So as Jesus tells this parable, his audience is going, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? That's completely different from everything we've ever been taught. The kingdoms of earth would say, bury the money, bury the money. But listen to this, the kingdom of heaven isn't like the kingdoms of earth. The kingdom of heaven isn't like the kingdoms of earth. Why? Because our king is different. Because our king is different. Our king doesn't need to worry about being reelected. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Our king doesn't need to worry about the strength of the economy because he upholds all things by his powerful hand. He doesn't need to play it safe because he's strong. Our king isn't like the kings of this earth. And as God's people, we need to understand that. Here's the principle we need to understand from that. God doesn't need a safe bet. He needs fearless servants. God doesn't need a safe bet. He needs fearless servants. Fearless in our witness, fearless in our faith, and yeah, fearless in our finances too. God doesn't need a safe bet. He needs fearless servants. And we wanted to start with that because if we can get that, it can change other aspects of our faith too. You see, the whole Bible says you can trust God. In many different ways, shapes, and forms, the Bible says you can trust God. How many of you have ever read your Bible and you've got that impression that the Bible wanted you to understand you can trust God? Show of hands this morning. You're either raising your hands or you're not paying attention. I'm fine with both, okay? Right? The Bible says in many ways, shapes, and forms, you can trust God. Money answers the question, do you trust God? So we want to talk about money this month because it has the ability to strengthen other aspects of our faith. We're talking about money. We know it's important because the Bible talks a lot about money. 2,000 verses speak about money in the Bible. Let's compare that to 500 verses on prayer, which I think we can all agree is an important subject. Do you know that Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven and hell combined? Let's not lose sight of the reason why Jesus talked about money. Let's not lose reason uh, or lose sight of the reason why Jesus talked about money. He talked about money because money has the greatest potential for ruining our relationship with God. Money has the greatest potential for ruining our relationship with God. When I was in elementary school, we had a lot of guest speakers. We loved guest speaker day. And one of the most common messages that we heard was something that you have probably heard as well. Just say no. Just say no. Just say no to drugs. Don't do it. And the reason that we heard that message so often is because drugs have a lot of potential to derail your life. Now... There are other things in life that are dangerous. You know what? The, the cone snail, for example, is dangerous. It has one of the most potent neurotoxic venoms on the planet. But we didn't hear a lot of seminars on cone snails. Just say no to cone snails. Because it doesn't have a lot of potential to ruin your life. You have to go to a very specific location to even find one. Drugs, on the other hand, have a lot of potential to derail your life plan. Okay. And the same is true with money. It's a great potential to ruin your life. Here's how I know. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. That's why Jesus talks so much about money. Because the love of money is an international airport that can take you to any destination you want. That's why the Bible talks about money. That's why Jesus talks about money. And that's why we're talking about money. Today I want to share a parable with you that illustrates this point. That the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we're going to examine this parable this principle, and the biblical alternative. So if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 13. Um, By the way, while you're turning there, if you don't have your own Bible, um, don't worry about that. I'm going to have all of the Bible text for you up here on the screen. If you have your own Bible and you're going to, I'd just really like to follow along and and take notes, um, go for that too. Again, I'll have it up here on the screen. If you look at the screen and you notice that the text Up there is different from the text in your Bible, it's just a different translation. I preach from the New Living Translation, Okay, so I'm not adding or taking away from the Bible. Last of all, if you don't have your own Bible and you want one, why don't you find me after service, I'd love to give you your own Bible. So, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13, here's what we read. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told a story, a parable. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. How many of you would like that? You don't have to raise your hand. I know the answer. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Everybody feels sorry for this man, right? Then he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then, then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but have, but not have a wealthy relationship with God. All right, here's what's going on. There's a rich man. He is obviously rich before he has his bumper crop, but this year, this year in the field certainly doesn't hurt him financially. Now he's got a problem. He looks at all of the grain and wheat that he has in his field and he looks at his barn and he says, it's not going to fit. It's not going to fit. Now that's a problem, but (laughs) in the world of problems, that's the better kind of problem, right? So he sits down and he says to himself, I need to come up with a solution. I need to come up with a solution. He asks himself, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And then he has this light bulb moment, eureka. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a bigger barn. And that is despicable. How could this man think of doing something so ungodly, so unchristlike, like so heinous as to build a bigger barn? You know what's wrong with building a bigger barn? Absolutely nothing. There is nothing wrong with building a bigger barn. Well, why does this parable end with the God calling this guy a fool and telling him he's going to die tonight? It has nothing to do with the action and everything to do with the motivation. Did you catch that? It has nothing to do with the action and everything to do with the motivation. Why does the man want a bigger barn? So he can put his feet up, so he can eat and drink and be merry. I'm going to read this text to you one more time and I'm going to emphasize a few pronouns. So just just hang with me here, okay? There's a rich man. He has a fertile farm that produces fine crops and he said to himself, "What should I do?" I Don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, drink. Be merry. Eleven times. Eleven times he talks about himself and what he'll get out of his bigger barn. Do you know how many times he talks about other people? Care to venture a guess? Zero. Zero. He wasn't focused on anybody but himself. And that's a big problem, especially in the first century world. Here's what I mean. In the first century, uh, there was no global economy, right? When I, when I go on Amazon, I can buy stuff from all over the world. I can sell stuff to people all over the world. And so uh, wealth has this way of traveling. And there is plenty of wealth to go around. So just because I live in this community doesn't mean that I can't make money from Chicago, Right? I, I can sell something. I, it's a consumer-driven market. The ancient world wasn't like that. If you lived in a small community, there was a finite amount of wealth for your community. So if one person was rich, it meant that everybody else was not rich. Right? If there's ten pieces of gold in the community and one guy has seven, it means that there's now three pieces of gold for the rest of the community to live off of. Trey Bloomberg says that 70 to 80% of people had a marginal existence. 70 to 80% of the people that lived in this time had a marginal existence. They were poor. Now, nobody was mad at this rich man for being rich it's just how it goes he was obviously a shrewd businessman he had a farm that had great soil it produced good crops good for him nobody's mad at this guy for being rich but there was a strong strong cultural expectation that the rich man would have been generous with his community especially from his surplus but that's not what happens The rich man says, I'm going to build bigger barns and I will have plenty for years to come. A common objection to this is that, oh, it sounds a lot like socialism. Now, socialism says, put all the money in the same pot and the government's going to distribute it. Everybody gets the same amount equally. This is not socialism. This is a little economic theory I like to call decency. He's living in a world where his neighbors are wondering where their next meal is going to come from. And he has the audacity to say, I have enough for years to come. Do you see the problem here? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Here's the principle we can learn from the rich man. You ready? If the only thing your money serves is you, you're the slave. If the only thing your money serves is you, you're the slave. You're addicted to it and you don't even know. But I want to be honest with you. I have a hard time being too rough on this rich man. I I mean, I know that we come into this text with some preconceived notions. The the parable is titled, The Rich Fool. kind of gives you an idea of how you're supposed to feel about the guy before you start reading. But I have a hard time being so hard on this guy. I don't think he's evil. I don't think he's evil. Is he selfish? Yeah. Is he foolish? Sure but I don't think he's evil. I think he fell into a lie that each of us is susceptible to. He, he bought into this lie that I can have enough to be satisfied. I can have enough to be satisfied. Do you know that studies show that when people are asked how much more you would need to be satisfied, no matter what economic range you ask somebody in, the answer is almost always the same it's 10% more than you currently have. If I just had 10% more than I currently have, I could be happy. I think it's also interesting that the Bible says a tithe is 10%. If I had 10% more, I could be happy. But if I gave 10% more, the Bible calls us to the other extent. Well, why is it that we always want 10% more than we have? Here's what I believe. I believe it's because we covet things the most when they're just outside of our reach. We covet things the most when they're just outside of our reach. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it. I'm going to use a car illustration. I'm a big car guy. Uh, I, I grew up loving cars. I, I love especially cars that go fast. Okay? I don't know anything about mechanics or engines or anything like that, but I love vehicles that go fast. I could give you every technical specification that you would ask for. I just love it. I grew up that way. I, I grew up wanting uh, a Ferrari 550 Marinello or an Aston Martin DB7. Love them. I think they're beautiful cars. Today, I think that the most beautiful car on the market is the Ferrari 599 GTO. That's pretty, right? That's a pretty pretty car. If you're not a car person, I have a point. Just stick with me another, another minute. You'll be all right. Uh, this car is incredible. It's just fantastic. They have to have special cooling systems for the brake pads so that they don't melt when the car is driving at high speeds. It's just an amazing, amazing vehicle. But let me ask you something about this car. Do you think that I have ever seriously considered buying this car? Show of hands, how many of you think I've ever seriously considered buying this? Okay, okay, another show of hands, how many of you think that I have ever really spent time coveting this car? You have so little faith in me. The answer is no on both counts, okay? This car, right now, if I were to try to buy this car today, this is from 2011, this car would cost me $650,000. For a used 2011. I have enough self-awareness to know that I'm never going to have that car. So I don't spend time coveting it. I don't spend time thinking about how I'm going to buy it. I don't covet that car at all. Let me show you a car that I could covet. This. (laughs) This little beauty, is the 2018 Toyota Sienna Limited Premium. (laughs) It comes with leather, it comes with gadgets, and its own personal view of the ocean. Okay? (laughs) This thing is fantastic. And this thing is also unaffordable for me. But if I had just 10% more, If I had just 10% more, all of the sudden, I could find myself obsessing over this car and and thinking about this car and and, and wanting to buy that car. If I had just 10% more, all of the sudden, I could become obsessed with that and, and think about how I would get it. Our desire is always strongest for whatever is just out of reach. Our desire is always strongest for whatever is just out of reach. No matter how much we have, there's always going to be something that's just past our reach. I don't need a $650,000 Ferrari, but you could catch my eye with a brand new fully loaded minivan. And this is true no matter what you have. If you have a bicycle you want a moped. If you have a moped it's a motorcycle. If you have a motorcycle it's a Toyota. If you have a Toyota it's a Cadillac. Cadillac it's a Mercedes. If you have a Mercedes you want a Ferrari. If you have a Ferrari you want your own helicopter. If you have your own helicopter you want a private plane. If you have your own private plane you want a super yacht. Then you need the world's biggest super yacht. Then you need your own private island. Then you start figuring out how you're gonna put people in space. There's always something that's just out of reach. There's always a reason to need 10% more than you currently have. Here's the principle. Greed will always leave you hungry for more. Always leave you hungry for more. So the idea that I can have enough is a false one. I can have enough to be satisfied is a lie. If you need more to be satisfied, you'll never have enough. And so this idea that I can be generous when I have enough is also a lie. If you can't be generous with what you have, you never can be. Let me say that again. If you can't be generous with what you have, you never can be. Here's why. Because generosity is tied to your heart, not your wallet. Generosity is tied to your heart, not your wallet. Now, I think some of you might be a little surprised that I'm introducing the subject of generosity here. All right, you're sitting there and you're combing over your Bible and you're looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. and You're going, wait a minute, Tony, I've got a question here. The word generosity never appears in this text. There's no, there's no mention of the word generosity in this text. So, Tony, why are, why are you all of a sudden talking about generosity? Here's why. You're right. Generosity is never mentioned, but its absence calls attention to it all the more. I want to play a little game here to illustrate my point. I'm going I'm to say the first few words of a well known song, and the only rule is don't finish the lyric. Okay? If you finish the lyric, I win. If you don't, you win. You guys want to play? Say yes. Thank you. Okay. Amazing grace, how sweet the. Oh, it's painful, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. You can't do it. And even if I just, let me try it again. I once was lost, but now am. How many of you want to say found more than anything in the world right now? How many of you finished the line in your head? Yeah, there you go. I win. The absence of generosity calls attention to its presence more than it would be if it was actually there. Generosity should be in this parable. Generosity should be how this parable ends. As I was writing this sermon this week, I did something a little different, something that I don't usually do. I asked myself, what would it take for this parable to end well? What would it take for this parable to be a positive one instead of a negative one? Here's what I came up with, and I just want to remind you at the beginning i'm not trying to rewrite the bible this isn't what the bible says i'm just saying here's how this parable would end well a rich man had a fertile field that produced fine crops and he said to himself what should i do i don't have room for all my crops then he said i know i'm going to tear down my barns and i'm going to build bigger ones then then i'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods and i'll be able to invite the poor to take what they need. And not only will I have enough, but my neighbors will have enough too. And God said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. That isn't how the parable ends. but Generosity is the thing that's called for when it comes to God's resources. Remember we said last week, If we want to identify what's God's and what's ours, it's real easy. We just have to say, is it on this planet? It's God's. Is the farm I'm working on this planet? It's God's. Is my IRA earth-based? It's God's. Okay. We have been entrusted with God's resources and the best thing we can be with God's resources is generous. And here's what happens. When we're generous... It does something to us. Generosity leads to contentment. Generosity leads to contentment. Here's my proof. This is what comes directly after the parable we just read. Jesus says, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you're far more valuable to Him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over big things? Generosity leads to contentment. So here's what I want you to know. If you're generous with what God provides, you'll understand more fully that God provides what you need. If you're generous with what God provides, you'll understand more fully that God provides what you need. I want to leave, leave that up there for a second. I want to tell you a story. A friend of mine, let me borrow a book. It was by the founder of Hobby Lobby, David Green. If your house is anything like mine, I have a sleeping bag at Hobby Lobby. I keep it there. But... Uh, Um, This is David Green, he's the founder of Hobby Lobby, and uh, he told this story. He said it was around 1979, and I was attending a large convention in my denomination in Tennessee. Missionaries from all over the world gave presentations on their work. I paid close attention, remembering how my mother had always given special care and effort to funding foreign missions. As I flew home after the meeting, I was looking out the airplane window when something unusual happened to me. It seemed a quiet voice inside of me said, "You need to give thirty thousand dollars for literature." During the convention, one of the speakers had talked about the need for more printed material in his particular field. His words came back to me as I sat on that plane, and my first reaction to those words, as I sensed in my heart, was that thirty thousand dollars was way too much to consider. This company wasn't big enough yet; I, I couldn't afford that amount. We only had four stores. No, I concluded, that's impossible. Yet the impression wouldn't go away. God, I don't have $30,000, he silently prayed. But you're serious about this, aren't you? It was just then that I had an idea, he writes. Well, I suppose I could write four checks for $7,500, and and I'll just post-date them a month apart for the next four months. I sat there pondering the option and I did some calculating and and maybe this could work after all. When I reached home, I wrote the four checks and I put them in an envelope, took a deep breath, prayed that I could make good on them and I mailed them to Tennessee. When the church official called to acknowledge my gift, he made an intriguing comment. He said, the day your letter was postmarked, was the very day that four African missionaries had a special prayer meeting for literature funds. Looks like God answered the prayer, huh? That was the beginning of Hobby Lobby's participation in God's work. Good times, bad times, it didn't matter. Green writes, I was determined that this business would play its role in the kingdom of God. And I love how Green concludes this story. He says, in making this decision, I quickly experienced the same joy in giving with my business as I did in my personal life. I love that. Experienced the same joy in giving. You see, if you're generous with what God provides, you'll know more fully that God provides what you need. God provides what you need. I believe Jesus said something similar to that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Here's how I want to sum up this text today. Here's if you remember one thing, I want you to remember what I'm about to put up on the screen. Greed will always leave you wanting more. Generosity will always make you grateful for what you have. If you remember one thing, remember that. Greed will always leave you wanting more. generosity will always make you grateful for what you have. And above everything else, what we have is Jesus. An incredibly generous gift from an outrageously generous God. We have Jesus who purchased our forgiveness in spite of our guilt at the cost of His life. What we have is Jesus who has given us forgiveness of sins and the gift of Holy Spirit. What we have is Jesus. And being generous will make us more grateful for that. This month, I'm asking us to be generous. Not so the church will have more money. Not so that the church will have more money, so that you'll have more gratitude and less greed so that you'll see people in need and have a heart to help. This month, I'm asking you to be generous so that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Greed's always going to leave you wanting more. Generosity is always going to leave you thankful for what you have. Let's pray. God, we thank You and we praise You today for what we have. We come here with different amounts of money in our bank account, but we come here praising the same Jesus and with the same hope for eternity. And so, Father, we praise you for that, and would you please give us the courage to be generous with what you've entrusted to us. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.